So we understand and we recognize and we respect the power of multilateralism, which is why we think the UN is such an important, important agency, it's such an important family, because this is where, as I said, we have a seat at the table, we have a voice, we have an opportunity, we're seen, and these things are extremely crucial because one has to engage on things beyond your borders. You have to engage on things that may not necessarily directly impact you, but which you know impact your neighbors. Welcome everyone to this new episode of The Next Page, our podcast, Library and Archives, designed to advance the conversation on multilateralism. This is the Ambassador Series, and today I have the great pleasure and the honor to have with me in the studio, Matthew Wilson, Ambassador Wilson, who is the permanent representative of Barbados to the UN office here in Geneva. First of all, Matthew Welcome and thank you for making time to join us in the studio today. Why don't you start by just introducing yourself? I have my notes here, but let's you know bring you up uh, to the audience and just a little bit about yourself and how you came to diplomacy and to be the permanent representative of your country to the UN. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thank you for giving a, a space and a voice to small island developing states. I think that's really, really important that we have these avenues to share what our views and our perspectives are. Actually, my journey started, I would say, um, more than 30 years ago, 1994. As a student, I participated in the Global Conference on the Sustainable Development of Small Island Developing States in Barbados. And this is actually the first conference on sustainable development and Agenda 21. And the focus was very much on helping small island states to find solutions to environmental and development challenges, which when you think about it 30 years later, this is still front and center of the agenda. So I was a young student and we participated in the youth component of that, that particular conference. And I remember standing on stage, thousands of students from all over the world in front of me, and I had to talk about why the UN was important to small country like Barbados and why we needed attention to be given to our priorities. So, you know, I got the bug 30 years ago, you know. I took a little bit of a diversion. I did a psychology and sociology as my undergraduate, which I have to tell you really is an essential part of navigating diplomacy. So no regrets there at all. And then I went back into international development and international relations and joined the Foreign Service of uh, Barbados, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Foreign Trade. And there you become a little bit of a jack-of-all-trades because you're such a small country, but you have a big voice and you essentially have to cover many different areas. So you become quite adept at, you know, multidisciplinary issues of being able to be very flexible as well. And these are all traits that have served me very well in my, in my position today. And, you know, after my stint at the permanent mission of Barbados in Geneva, where I covered um, trade issues in particular, human rights issues, labor issues, I decided it was time to try something different. I really wanted to get into multilateralism, to work in a multilateral institution, and to see what life was like from that perspective. So I joined the World Trade Organization, working on development issues, aid for trade. And then a few years after, I um, joined the cabinet of the then Director General Pascal Lamy, which really took things to a whole different level, because there you were really working at a high level of policy 
and decision making and having access and agency in a way that um, few small states representatives have. So that really was uh, quite an education for me. And then after that, I uh, joined um, Arancha Gonzalez um, as her chief of staff at the International Trade Center, which is a joint agency of the UN and the WTO, very much focused on delivering for small and medium-sized enterprises, so a very practical agency, in a way helping to make sure that trade works for small enterprises in developing countries. And in that role, I mean, not only was it fascinating to learn from someone like um, Arancha Gonzalez, but... I was able to cover many different areas, so not just trade and entrepreneurship, but also issues around diversity and inclusion, things that are really, really close to my heart as well. So that was really quite a fascinating couple of years there. And then um, I decided uh, it may be time to come back home. I have, Barbados is blessed to have a fantastic leader, Prime Minister Mia Amor Motley, who has been doing an amazing job of representing the views and the perspectives and the demands of small island states and other developing countries when it comes to climate change, when it comes to access to finance, and when it comes to essentially global moral strategic leadership. And I wanted to be part of that journey. Uh, So I've been doing this job for um, a little over a year now. I don't just cover the UN issues here in Geneva. I also cover WTO issues, um, ILO, human rights, WHO. And we're also accredited to, uh, to Italy and to Austria. So I also cover the UN agencies in Italy and Austria. I'm also the ambassador to Switzerland. And um, the mission here is also accredited to a number of European countries as well, from Romania to Bulgaria to Hungary. So it's a huge, huge remit, a huge mandate. And we're very, very small. But the good thing sometimes about being small is that it forces you to make tough decisions about what you're going to focus on. And it allows you to see things from a more of a bird's eye view. It allows you to see the linkages and how things work and interact with each other. And you're able to make, I think, decisions and have positions which they're just not in one chamber. You're able to see how things connect. And I think being a, an ambassador and a diplomat, especially from a small country, to have that possibility to hone that skill is so incredibly important. Yeah, this is great. And maybe to clarify to our audience, most permanent representatives represent their countries within the UN, both in Geneva and in New York, and of course also in other offices away from headquarters like Nairobi and Vienna. But in some cases, and you're one of them, they also hold responsibilities as ambassadors to countries. And so these jobs that are different by the complementary, usually are done by different individuals, and some ambassadors accumulate these jobs, and it gets your schedule, I imagine, extremely, extremely dense. But as you said, it gives this bird eye and different kind of views. Yeah, that's the first time I think about it in this way, but it certainly makes sense when you say that those two really help understanding reality and making sense of reality differently. Let's start talking about your country. You just mentioned it, you know, Barbados is blessed, and indeed it is blessed. It also has a fascinating history shaped by its geographic position and internal dynamics, and those changes, especially big changes, rapid pace changes that, that took place during the 17th and the 18th century. So I was visiting your country several times in my life for work. I could see that it's a special place, and it comes you know, almost as a revelation when you go there and you're just going to this kind of paradise island in your mind for the first time and then you see that it's blessed in many different ways and Barbadians have 
come through to me as people who know this on many on many levels. So for those who do not know your country and were not as lucky as me to visit, could you just tell us, you know, how you would present Barbados and what are perhaps the key moments of the history of the country? I'll steal a phrase that you just used, which is that Barbados is a very special place. I mean, like most countries in the Africa, Caribbean and Pacific, I mean, we do have a very broken and very tragic history. But essentially one that is about rebuilding, resilience and reconciliation. So in many occasions, we were the first port of call in the slave trade where enslaved um, Africans were brought over to the quote-unquote new world to essentially work under servitude. So the history is very difficult. Many of our indigenous populations in the Caribbean were, were wiped out. There's sometimes a bit of an attention with our history because there's a point in time where there is no history that we are, we are aware of. It's not written, it's not recorded. But out of that comes the possibility to have ownership and agency over how you move forward. So more and more we're starting to, especially our education system, we need to pay more attention to African history. We need to be very uh, intentional about how we teach the time around uh, slavery and emancipation so that you're working from the perspective of facts and truths, even hard facts, even difficult truths. I think it's really important that the modern Barbadian, the modern West Indian is fully aware of the good and the bad that we've gone through to get us to where we are today. But we are a very resilient people. And we are crafting a future for ourselves that builds on our past and tries to create our own identity, which I think that we have been very successful at doing. This whole idea of a Caribbean identity, which is not just sun and sea and fun and music and food. I mean, that's a huge part of who we are. But it's also about a community of people who understand that they have to live in a global community that we have to care about things which are beyond our shores, that we have to sometimes have moral strategic leadership, that we have to support others who may be weaker than we are. And this is why for us multilateralism is so key, because it's an opportunity for every single country, no matter the size, no matter the history, to have a seat at the table. And that is really how we are trying to create what is a Barbadian, uh, a bit of a Barbadian characteristic, one that embraces everyone and you know i'll use a, a borrow phrase from our first prime minister when we had independence in 1966 friends of all satellites of none which means that we will work with everyone but we are committed to making our own decisions to following our our own path and something very interesting happened just a few years ago as well we became a republic so we became independent in 1966 we became a republic a few years ago, which for me is a natural extension, a natural level of maturity from becoming independent. So we now have our own president, who is a Barbadian. And it's really, really important because this also sends a signal to Barbadians that anyone born in Barbados can grow up to be president one day. And the fact that our president and our prime minister both happen to be women, I think also sends a very, very powerful message. So Barbados is a beautiful country, come and visit, but it's also a country of resilience, a country full of culture. We're the birthplace of rum, for example. And we're a country that is charting its own path forward. Well, thank you for, for sharing those points and, and staying with this reality and this unique positioning of Barbados in the Caribbean community. I wanted to ask you to tell us a little bit about Barbados' role in the Caribbean community 
and what can be said about your relations with uh, with your neighbor. So in a way, Barbados within the region. So all of us in the Caribbean region, we have very similar historical trajectories. But some of us were colonized by different countries. So some of them were colonized by the French, some were colonized by the Spanish, by the Portuguese, by the Dutch. Barbados is only ever colonized by, by the English. So there are nuances to how we have um, we have developed as a country, as cultures, as communities. But we all face these exact same issues. Right now, um, climate change is the biggest issue that many of us face. Heavy indebtedness is a huge issue. Migration lack of appropriate jobs, especially for the youth. And when you're as small as we are individually, you have to come together. There really is strength in numbers, and the whole really is bigger than the single parts. And that is where the whole CARICOM regional single market economy comes in. It's about pooling your resources, pooling your human resources, to have one louder voice and louder perspective in the outside world. So for many, many years, we've been working to eradicate uh, tariffs and non-tariff barriers between our countries, to have better transportation links between our countries, to speak with one voice on certain key issues, which is what we do on many occasions in the UN system, especially the UNGA. You know, we speak in one voice from the CARICOM. We do the same thing here in, in Geneva, at the UN Human Rights Council, for example. So it has been a really important part of Barbados's development because we know that there's strength in numbers, we know that we have a bigger impact, a bigger effect when we come together, when we're able to agree on certain um, certain political, economic, and social social norms. So the CARICOM project, I call it, has really worked for us. Now, is there more that we need to do? Of course, there's still more barriers that we need to break down, but I think that we're on the on the right on the right road. This community of countries comes together logically. And we can see on the international affairs, you know, arena, how that yields fruits. I wanted to ask you, what are the barriers, maybe the the key barriers? So, for example, as an external observer, I can observe that two languages are kind of play here. The English, of course, and Spanish mainly, but also French. So those are barriers or things that are being, you know, they're dividing you or not? How do you deal with this division that is not only linguistic, but probably also kind of cultural? I mean, there's great beauty and diversity. And I think we see the diversity as something to harness as an opportunity rather than a challenge. So, of course, there there's some language barriers. You know, in CARICOM, we have Haiti, for example. Um, we also have uh, the Dominican Republic, who's in CARIFORUM. And then we're also surrounded by... Uh, you know, Martinique and, and Guadeloupe, uh, we have the Dutch islands as well. We are surrounded essentially on one side by Latin America. So rather than see it as a barrier, we have seen it as an opportunity to, for us, for example, for most of us to learn Spanish. So many of our countries are now saying Spanish has to be a mandatory second language because it's not just about the community, it's also about the trade links. And clearly when you're able to speak the same language, understand each other. It makes trade a little bit easier as well. And we've been expanding a lot into Latin America. We've opened missions, embassies recently in uh, Brazil and in Panama, especially where we have um, huge trade links because we have a massive historical link with Panama through the Panama Canal. Many of us from uh, our ancestors in Barbados actually left to go to Panama to help build 
the Panama Canal, much like what we did in the Windrush generation going to the UK to help rebuild the UK after the war and to be nurses and doctors and, and to work in construction and transportation. So we've always been a region that moves, that moves and delivers for other countries, but there's always that link back to our region. So I prefer to see the differences and the diversity as something that we can harness to, to actually make all of us better, to bring us all a little closer together. Now, if we zoom a little bit wider, so we talked about Barbados in its own region, and you just hinted at what Barbados' place is in the world today. Uh, I would like to tell the story to our audience of what Barbados basically bring to the rest of humanity today. Barbados is a bridge builder. We want to connect countries, we want to connect people, we want to connect ideas, we want to connect solutions. As I said, friends of all, satellites of none. Global moral strategic leadership is something that my prime minister has very much focused on, which is that global leadership cannot just be about economics. It cannot just be about dollars and cents. It cannot just be about politics. It has also to be about doing the right thing. And actually, that's what the SDGs are about. huh? It's about doing the right thing, leaving no one behind. So for us, we take great pride in being able to support, speak on behalf, and bring people together around concepts that are important, not just for us, but for our community of nations. And not just our community of nations today, but for generations who will come after us which is why we've taken such an active role on climate change issues, because we know that what we do here in the present is going to impact on generations to come. So we understand and we recognize and we respect the power of multilateralism, which is why we think the UN is such an important, important agency, is such an important family, because this is where, as I said, we have a seat at the table, we have a voice, we have an opportunity, we're seen, and these things are extremely crucial because one has to engage on things beyond your borders. You have to engage on things that may not necessarily directly impact you, but which you know impact your neighbors. This is a way of looking at global moral strategic leadership. So for us, we are a small island, but with a, with a big voice. And we have been involved in many of the UN processes and many of the UN agencies as well. So even right now, uh, we are a member of the ILO governing body. We're also a member of the WHO executive board. We hosted UNCTAD 15, and we're now moving to have a global supply chain forum, which we're going to be hosting in March uh, 2024 with UNCTAD. We've been working uh, with WHO on non-communicable diseases. Uh, we have been part of the first CARICOM resolution ever put in the Human Rights Council, which is on having a human rights uh, office in the region. We have just uh, been the latest country to join the um, IOM. We now have an IOM presence in Barbados, and we're also persuading uh, other agencies at UNIDO to also bolster their presence in the region. We're in the process of developing a host country agreement with the UPU. And in Barbados, we have a UN office that houses dozens of UN agencies. So we are very much a hub for the UN in the region. So this is all evidence as to why the UN is so important to us. The UN, the WTO, UNCTAD, ILO, WHO, we all see value in having multilateral discussions on issues that impact all of us, maybe differently, but impact all of us in some way, and to come to multilateral solutions. That for us is the most sustainable, multilateral problem solving and having multilateral solutions. 
Yeah, and this brings us straight into maybe this part of the conversation where I like to ask permanent representatives, you know, about their experience as a country in the UN itself, the UN and the UN Secretariat in particular. Barbados is a member of the United Nations since 66, since your independence. And as you mentioned, it is also a hub for the United Nations operations, the famous the office you mentioned that we call UN multi-country office, the MCO. So for Barbados and the Eastern Caribbean, this is clearly a sort of big presence of the UN uh, in your country. So one could say that uh, we are enjoying the partnership with you for over 40 years now. And so what's your assessment uh, of Barbados' journey in the UN as an organization seen from your point of view? I think the mere fact that in 1994, as I had mentioned, we put this issue of climate change and sustainability for small island developing states on the agenda. And now this is really central to the UN discourse today. It's really about putting people and the most vulnerable at the center of your policy making. Now, ideally, it wouldn't have taken, you know, 30 years for us to still be addressing the same issues. But the fact that we've kept it on the agenda, I think, says a lot about our advocacy, our persistence, and our influence. Uh, the worst decision that anyone can take and any country can take is no decision at all. So that's why we've been so engaged, engaged in the resolutions, engaged in problem solving behind the scenes, engaged in having technical and political solutions that work for countries at all levels of development. We have shown up. And that has been the most important thing, to show up and to engage and to be constructive. And uh, I think that the Madrilaho system has worked for us and we have worked for it. And when we see that the multilateral system is not working, we say something about it. So, for example, right now, Barbados is really leading on the Bridgetown Initiative, which is really calling for the international financial architecture to be revamped, to be modernized with the needs of countries in 2023, uh, the World Bank, the IMF, the regional development banks, because we saw that it was not working for us. We have signed many agreements, had many resolutions, many agreements on the need to green our economy, on the need to embrace this transition to the circular economy. But we can't do it unless there is the financing there, unless we have access to this financing, unless the decision-making bodies are democratized in such a way that we have a say in how certain decisions are going to be made. So rather than just complain about something not working for us, we put a proposal on the table and we've been building um, allyship behind this proposal for the last year and a half. And it has great momentum. And we've been able to see certain deliverables come out of it. Like, for example, the inclusion of um, natural disaster clauses in World Bank loans. We're seeing more of a discussion of not using GDP per capita as a way to exclude countries from accessing certain kinds of climate financing. We've seen it with the loss and damage fund. So, you know, it really goes to show that you can have an, an idea, you can have a problem, and you put something on the table to solve that problem, and you build consensus around it, you build partnerships around it, and it can really take off the way that the Bridgetown Initiative has. And we're a small country of 270,000 people, and we're leading on an initiative that will have incredibly transformational impacts on many, many developing countries and will potentially transform the way that the international financial architecture works. That uh, shows also a sort of, uh, to use a term that you employed before, this global, the sense 
of global moral strategic leadership. And I think your, your prime minister is showing that in any of the international instances where she's been addressing both member states and people at large. I was in a couple of those myself and I was impressed because it transpires this kind of awareness of this need for global more strategic leadership. I'll keep that, you know, this terminology really resonates with me. However, as a diplomat and a permanent representative in the UN, I wanted to hear you on the key global challenges facing multilateralism in the UN today. So not these global problems like migration, climate change that you mentioned that Barbados is already fighting for uh, since the 90s. But what are the challenges now to multilateralism within the UN, the UN that you practice as a PR every day? I think one of them is embracing diversity as a force for good and problem solving. So diversity of thought, diversity of experience, diversity of representation. So not being afraid of different voices, not being afraid of different perspectives, but seeing how you can use all this beautiful diversity and inclusion in a way to create a solution that works for the majority of people. The second, I think the UN really has to think a little bit more about how it can truly capture and represent the multipolarity of today's world, both in terms of its staff, in terms of its representation, in terms of its storytelling, in terms of its communication. I think the UN really has got to represent this full totality of its audience. Then there's the tension of reform. Member states need to be intentional about what has got to happen to engender confidence in the decision-making processes of the UN. We know that reform has to happen. We know that things have got to be, that silos have got to be broken down. But member states and the Secretariat have to work together to make this happen and for this to be really uh, effective. Then the biggest issue outside, which is going to impact on how the UN is able to deliver the next coming decades, actually, is inequality. Inequality breeds contempt. Inequality breeds fear, anger, despair, cycles of poverty and of conflict. And these are all areas which are clearly under the mandate of the UN to address. So we need to be more clear about finding solutions for inequality between states and importantly inequality in states amongst communities and I it's a very tough nut to crack but I think we all have to look at our policies through the lens of how can we reduce inequalities and linked to this is the job crisis so the climate crisis is a huge crisis but following very closely behind the climate crisis is jobs you know Africa has an incredible amount of innovation, there is an explosion of youth innovators and entrepreneurs in Africa in particular, but the jobs are not there to match. And this is where issues come up. There's going to be a huge job crisis that we need to solve to make sure that the youth are being able to be productive and to be part of the, uh, the productive um, environment as well. These are some of the issues that I think that we have to deal with as a global community and that the UN has got to deal with as well. And then, of course, one of the most important things for the UN is um, results and impact. The UN has got to increasingly show why it matters. And the best way to do that is to show results, to show impact, to show stories. And I think that the UN has to continue to do that important work and invest in how it communicates, how it shows results, and how it shows that it's really making a difference on the ground. 
And looking from a different perspective, I, I certainly agree with what you're saying, but now if we change perspective and you look at how a country could make itself useful in the UN community, if we want to call it like that, and uphold multilateralism with an eye to how we build and protect or fail to build and protect collective security, which is definitely the number one pillar at the center of the UN's construction. Going forward into the future, how do you see this? I have a very simple response to a very complex question. Show up. Member states have got to show up. They've got to be at the table. They've got to engage. They've got to look for solutions. They've got to practice evidence-based decision-making. That's really key. Evidence-based decision-making. And also value-based decision-making and engagement as well. I think that those two things are really key. Like I said, we need to be a bridge builders. We need to seek compromises that deliver for most and hurt the less. I think that's really, really important as well. And importantly, we have to start seeing the private sector and civil society as partners, valuable partners. They're not our enemies. We're not going to be able to have sustainable solutions politically, economically, socially, or culturally unless we really bring the private sector and civil society on board. Their views matter, and we have to create a space for them. And not a siloed space, but an integrated space, I think, is really important. And then, frankly, I think all of us need to recommit to what the UN stands for and what it stays in its charter. All people are created equally. And if you truly believe that, then you begin to question this notion of profit over people or decisions that widen the inequality gap. If you really recommit to the purpose of the UN, which still remains so relevant today, then that must infuse and influence the kinds of decisions, the kinds of consensus building that you take at the multilateral level. The history of how member states of the UN relate to the idea and practice of UN shows that the smaller the member state, the more valuable this notion of international cooperation being together, multilateralism on a world is. Do you think that that holds true in the future, and how so for small states like Barbados? The UN is going to be even more important for small states going forward. It would be so easy right now when you see what's happening on the uh, supply chain issues, when you see what's happening with nearshoring and friendshoring, when you see what's happening with the geopolitics and the development of new geopolitical blocks, which in many respects will create outliers of small island developing states, small states and LDCs, because we may not be seen as important players. We may not have the markets that um, others may, may seek. That means if you don't have multilateralism and multilateral agencies to represent you, and for you to represent your perspective and your needs and your challenges and to create opportunities, you could become a failed state, completely left on the outside of new revolutions, uh, of digital revolutions, of access to digital technology, of access to green technology, which is things that we need. We saw this um, you know, during the pandemic period when some small states did not have access to pharmaceuticals and we had to go multilateral. So I think that as time moves on, the multilateral engagement, multilateral agencies 
will become even more important to small states because this is, as I said before, the only place where we have an equal voice and an equal seat at the table. Now, is the UN multilateral decision-making process ideal? It is not. One can only take a look at the Security Council and there are many questions that one can ask about the makeup of the Security Council and how it functions. And I hope that with time, we will see more voices recognizing that the UN also has to reflect more and more its membership, its modern membership, that it has to be more democratic in how it functions at certain levels as well. But there is absolutely no substitute for small states for what the UN represents. Well, that's very, very clear. Now, a question to the former UN staff. How do you operate as an individual, as a professional, this shift in mindset from being a staff of the UN immersed in the attitudes and practices of the secretariat, understanding the system from within the system, to the mindset of the permanent representative um, representing the interests of your own country, of course, trying to gain common grounds, work together for the greater good, but still, you know, you've got a job to do as permanent representing, you represent. I'd like to think that our value systems are very, very similar. Having worked in the WTO and the UN, I know how passionate UN and WTO employees, and actually the employees of many of the international organizations I've interacted with, how passionate they are to deliver for people and to deliver it effectively and to deliver transformational capacity building and technical assistance and policy advice. I feel the passion. And you have to have that same passion when you're a permanent representative and an ambassador for your country that you want to deliver for your people. People have got to be the center of what you're doing. So for me, it has not been very difficult at all because the value systems very much align. Now, it does mean that... Um, I know a few of the tricks. So sometimes it's a little bit more difficult to, uh, you know, I'm going to dig a little bit deeper. I'm, I'm going to ask you more questions. I'm going to insist on certain things because I also know that many of our international organizations can actually do a little bit more. They can make some more savings, actually. They can deliver technical assistance more effectively. I know this. So I do push, and I think that's good to have ambassadors and permanent representatives that challenge UN staff to do even more, to do even better, to engage in even more partnerships, to look at cost savings in an even more intentional way. So for me, I haven't felt the tension. Actually, like I said, I think it has been a quite a seamless um, transition for me, moving from representing a country to working in the international organization ecosystem, to then moving back to representing a country again. Because like I said, I think that we're all facing in the same direction maybe sometimes going at different speeds, we're all facing the same direction and we all want what is best for humanity. So in that respect, it has, uh, it has actually been, um, I don't want to say easy, but it has not been as challenging as one would expect. As we wind down the time together on this episode, I wanted to ask you, maybe you have um, a particular message that you want to leave with our audience. Maybe... You know, out there we have a lot of scholars, a lot of young, actually, students, uh, university students, master's students listening to these podcasts, and they have a chance to hear it from an ambassador who's mostly only heard by his peers in official settings. So if you were to leave with them one, you know, kind of main concept for them to, to take home, what would that be? So I'm going to leave four plus one. <laughs> 
One, people must be at the center. Two, narrow the inequality gap. Three, recommit to multilateralism and value-based decision-making. And four, for the UN system, as I said, focus on results and impact is the most powerful statement of relevance. And fifth, to any young people listening who are interested in this career, go for it. Have a passion for it. There is nothing more rewarding, I think, than working in the UN and supporting and feeling that you're making a difference, that you're working for people, that you're seeing changes happening on the ground. Go for it. That's all I will say. It's a fascinating place to work and you really feel that things are changing and that what you're doing is having an impact on the most vulnerable populations on the ground. So don't even think twice about coming into a UN career. It really is worth it. Well, Ambassador Matthew Wilson, Permanent Representative of Barbados to the UN in Geneva, thank you so much for being with us on the next page. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.